0: Hey, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is David. I'm the pastor here, and I'm so glad you're with us this morning. Um, We've been in the middle of a series, uh, we're coming to the end of it, uh, called Living on Mission. And throughout this series, um, we have been talking through our church's mission statement. And so if you received a program as you walked in the door, there's a paragraph in there that states our uh, mission statement. That says, uh, we desire to create an authentic Christian community that effectively reaches out to unchurched people with love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So they may experience the joy of salvation and a purposeful life of discipleship. And so throughout this series, um, we've been breaking that down. In the first week, we talked about authentic Christian community. Uh, And the second, we talked about effectively reaching out to the unchurched. How do we do do that? And then the third, we talked about uh, as we reach out, how do we do that with love, acceptance, and forgiveness? And so this morning, we're going to talk about uh, the second to last piece, which is experiencing the joy of salvation. Um, And as the lights come up, I want to encourage you to turn to James uh, chapter 1. James chapter 1, I'm not going to... Uh, read a lot from here, but I think uh, what James has to say in the beginning of chapter 1, this just sets the tone for our whole time this morning. Um, And uh, the last several days, uh, from Wednesday to Friday, I spent um, that time out at uh, a camp um, off of just kind of Lake McMurray area, not far from here in Conway, uh, with uh, uh, almost all of our CTK pastors. Um, and I went into it believing that I was going to not experience joy. I was not looking forward to it. And uh, to some of those closest to me, I really honestly shared that. Um, and towards the end, I, each one of us got a chance to stand up and share um, what, what was our one big takeaway. What was something we learned? And I shared and, uh, amongst uh, about 45 men. And I said, quite honestly, gentlemen, I was not looking forward to being here with you. Um, and I think we get so caught up, and, and here's why I shared that because we tend to get so caught up um, in the thinking of all of the things that are required, are asked of us in the Christian life, that we don't experience it. And so throughout that whole time, between Wednesday afternoon to Friday afternoon, I was blown away. I sat with men who were just being real with one another. I got to be uh, real with them in our small group time, and our teaching time. We talked about transitions as a new pastor and as a new father. That was very relevant uh, for me. And so I, I realized there's times where we just get into a, a rut. We get into a system and we think about, uh, man, I, I, I logically understand what salvation is. I mean, for you, maybe, uh, whether you've been in church a long time or, or, or recently, you probably have a verse or two, maybe John 3.16, that highlights salvation. You understand it, a, a verse or two that highlights joy, what, what you need to do. But maybe for you this morning, you're not experiencing it. And, and there's a lot of Christians out there, if I can be so bold, that look miserable. Like, you can see it on their faces. And, and non-believers rarely, here's what I, I think, non-believers rarely see Christians that have genuine joy. I mean, there's probably moments where they're like, hey, they, they seem okay in the midst of that struggle. But for the most part, they just look like miserable people who know this guy Jesus. And that's not what this life is about. That's not what the relationship with Jesus is about. But, but for people, non-believers, to see someone who has genuine joy, I'm not just talking about knowing joy, but experiencing joy, and them seeing that genuinely in another, I believe it's someone who sees work going on externally and internally. Like, they they see almost a happiness, but it's not just circumstantial. That that it invades every area of their life. I mean, mean, these people uh, have a, a, a tone that carries consistently through all of their trials. That that they're not just happy when things are happy. They're not just joy-filled when things are joy-filled. But, but in all situations, they're, they're keeping their attitude right, and they're, they're tuning it into Christ rather than their circumstances. And even in the midst of trials, they're not wavering by these things. They have genuine joy. And see, this is, this is not some recent problem. This has been a problem for centuries where we just get into this rut and into this thinking where we we get away from experiencing the joy of our salvation. We get away from experiencing relationship with Jesus and we just get into the systematic thinking of it. I mean, Constantine, who was a a Roman emperor, um, when he made the move to become emperor, he made the Roman nation, he made Christianity the core religion. He wiped out every other religion, all the other gods, and he said, Christianity is what we're about. And towards the end of him being emperor, and as a new emperor, Julian stepped in, um, he tried to put in place the old religions, the old gods, and wipe out what Constantine had done. And for one very specific reason. And here's what he wrote uh, about why he would remove Christianity and put into place this new system. He says, Have you looked at these Christians closely? hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-souled, all. They brood their lives away, unstirred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. How depressing is that? That's, that's the depiction that Julian has of people who follow Jesus. That's his understanding. I mean, it's almost, it's almost offensive, right? Like this is how he views the Christians. This is his understanding of what a Christian person's life looks like. And so it, it just kind of seems uh, offensive. But I think in our lives, one of the big issues is that we confuse happiness with joy. There's a big difference. Happiness is not bad. If a pastor gets up and tells you happiness is bad, you need to have joy, wipe out all happiness, they're not happy and they just want you to join their misery. Happiness is a good thing, but it is very different than joy because happiness is because of your circumstances. Joy is in spite of your circumstances. So there's a difference there. So you think about you know, a family gathering around a wedding, they're excited, there's, there's new life into a new marriage, they're excited to welcome someone into their new family, or, or for the most part, you know, and there's, there's, there's just joy around celebration, that's, that's happiness, right? That's good, you know? Maybe for some of you, you've had this experience, a boss comes to you and says, hey, you've been doing really good, we're gonna give you a raise. Man, there's, there's a party there, you're happy, right? Or you come home from a long day and your wife uh, prepares this wonderful meal and says, I'm, I'm gonna just fix you the food and I'm gonna rub your feet. And you're like, man, I am happy. I am happy, right? But that's happiness. It's different than joy. So you think of, you think of then joy of uh, death of a family member, the loss of that experience. For some of you, that's real. And the loss in that. Those circumstances really change. Or you think of, man, for some of you, uh, losing your job. That's not happy at all. That feels brutal. That feels really hard. Or, or when you get home and your wife is overwhelmed and, and she's tired and, and, and the meal is microwaved for that night and she don't even want to touch your feet, you know? <laughs> and that's not bad. Those are situations where we have the opportunity to choose joy. And we have to understand that it's different than happiness. And so James just maps out perfectly to experience joy in salvation. To really experience it, he lays out a really clear statement. Now remember, this is Jesus' little half-brother. Or this is Jesus' little brother. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, different fathers, right? Right? But James maps it out clearly how we need to respond in this. He says this in verse 2. And if you have your Bible and you you mark it often like I do, write this first statement down. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Circle the word various. So the, the funny thing that James states is that that joy, as we're to experience it in trials, he says various. He doesn't say anything specific. So loss of job, that fits into various, right? Right? Loss of income, that fits into various. Loss of maybe a relationship that just, for whatever reason, cannot be reconciled, that, that fits into various. There's a lot of things that can fit into various. And, and yet, for some reason, we, we tend to cookie-cutter it of, I'm not going through trials, If I was going through trials, then then man, that would be a a time to count it all as joy. But he says various trials. There's many trials. So as we face them, we need to understand that in all areas of our lives, that's where various fits in. All areas of our lives, we're going to experience trials. And the thing about those worldly trials is they are there in the hopes as Satan desires for you, that those things will rob you of your joy. That's the hope, that those things are gonna rob you of your joy and you're gonna be miserable and you're gonna be exactly who Julian wrote about once again in a new generation. But what God's desire for you is, as we see James write, is that you would count this as joy, that you would view this as an opportunity to mature into your faith, and so as we look at experiencing the joy of salvation, we need to understand that, that there's trials that come in that. There's, there's a season where we're going to feel stuck in a rut, and it's not going to look happy, but it's not supposed to. We're not talking about happiness. We're talking about counting it all joy. And so I want to give you a couple things that, that I really feel for us to experience the joy um, of salvation. There's a couple things that we need to really embrace, and not just uh, write down today, but really put into practice this week. So I think the first is that we experience the joy through real repentance. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, maps out uh, confession and, and conversion in someone's life when they experience salvation. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, repentance is is a biblical term, a word that we don't hear much in our culture. And that word repentance really means sincere regret or remorse. I mean, it bothers me. I if, if, your con- if your conversion story, the moment you met Jesus was at an altar call, I'm not knocking you, but, but it really bothers me that, that the sinner's prayer is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Nowhere do we ever f- hear that context. There's a radical conversion in their hearts. There's a real repentance that we read throughout Scripture. And I think we need to understand the word repentance because we don't hear it often. I mean, it's too often that we just simply say, I'm sorry. Maybe in our prayer time, man, God, I'm sorry. This is what I did. But, but it's being sorry almost in a cheap imitation way. Like, I'm sorry for that. Let's move forward. Um, but I think that really brings us back to our situation of sin. I think that really can if it's not real. Because we're lacking the sorrow in our sorry. The sorrow that, that you know, we don't grieve. Sin that's separating us from God. So there's almost this, in real repentance, there's this moment of grief that we're sharing with God. That, man, real repentance becomes asking God to break our hearts for what breaks his. That's that's what I believe real repentance is. This moment where we're saying, God, would you break my heart for what is breaking yours? That's why the psalmist points out, Lord, point out in things, uh, things in me, that are against you. Point out the parts that grieve you, and would you allow me to grieve that? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief, godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. I love that. So real repentance may start with this feeling of sorrow and remorse, this acknowledgement of, man, that, that sin is ugly. Man, that sin is against you, God. But it ends when we turn away from that sin and begin to pursue our Creator. That, that we're no longer in the pursuit of sin, but we're acknowledging, man, we're, we're gonna pursue the experience of joy, our, our, our creator, without regret. And I think we offer the most sincere apologies, the most sincere confessions, and the most sincere uh, repentance to God, not just with our words, but when it becomes a part of our action. That our repentance is not just something we say, But it's something we do. It's something that we put into practice. And I think as long as we're engaged in that sin, we're just gonna be in this cycle of a repeat repentance that's not real. I think that's one of the reasons why people are miserable. They keep walking through this life, man, God, why are you distant? Why are we at a disconnect? Man, Lord, help me to remove that sin. And then they never do the work of moving their life out of that sin pattern. And so it's not just by the words that we say, but by the actions that we choose coming out of that prayer time with God that we have to fully repent, not just with our words, but with our hearts and with our actions. And Corey ten Boom once marked out the, the four marks of repentance. And I thought these were really great. It's that first... The first mark of repentance, of true, real repentance is acknowledgement of wrong. Here's what I've here's what I've done. Here's where I've wronged you, God. And then second, the willingness to, con, to confess it. Not not just speak it, but the willingness to confess it, both to God and to a godly brother or sister. And then third, a willingness to abandon it. That it's not just with our words, but with our actions that there is repentance. And then, fourth, a willingness to make right. Whatever that sin has caused damage in, that there's a willingness to make right. So, let me ask you this question Are there areas of your life that are distancing you from God? Are there areas of your life that are distancing you from God? Maybe an area where you're not repenting of. Maybe an area where you're just in this pattern of repentance but not real action. Are there areas of your life that are distancing you from God? I think next we experience the joy through radical reconciliation. Not just just any old reconciliation, but radical reconciliation. Colossians 1.20 says... And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So, what does it look like for God to reconcile all things to himself? And, and why did Jesus have to die on the cross to make it possible? See, a couple of people have asked me this question lately. Why did Jesus have to die? Why, does, why is that a piece that people celebrate? Man, Jesus died, that's so good. And all of us are like, man, there's grief in death. And why, why do Christians seem so excited about this death piece? And I get that he comes back to, to life and that's cool, but why, why is there so much uh, joy in that? And I always love coming back to this illustration I've once, I've once heard and just kind of processed and shared is, is I want you to picture this for a moment. If you wanna close your eyes, go ahead. And just picture this for a moment. You're convicted of a bunch of crimes. You're convicted of many crimes. And you know you're guilty of them. There's no argument. You're guilty, you're put in chains, and you deserve this. And you're brought into court to account for your wrongs because you know what you've done and the list is long And you deserve every bit of the penalty, which is death. You deserve to die. And so you're convicted of these crimes and standing in your chains, there's not even an option for you to choose guilty or not guilty. There's no one next to you. You have no lawyer. You are guilty. And that is it. And so you're brought forth out to a firing squad where you will pay the penalty for what you've done you will pay the penalty for your crimes. And as they load their weapons and you're standing there in chains, in walks someone, approaches the judge in the firing squad and standing there in front of you and them while you're in chains, he says, convict me. Kill me. And let them go free. So from that moment on, they remove the chains and you're set free. From that moment on, you are free. There's no chain on you. There's no lock. It's gone. And they put the chains on the man who stepped into your place. And after loading their weapons, they kill him. And he pays the penalty for what you were supposed to pay. For what you were supposed to pay. But then because... He was perfect. There was no error in him. He lived the same life you did, but didn't chose choose crime. He chose his creator. And because of that, in his perfect record, and having no record of his own, but taking on yours, death couldn't hold him. The chains couldn't bind him. And through that, after Several days, just three days, he comes back to life and clearing the record. Because he didn't do that for one of you. He did that for all of you. And so, there is no more record. There is no more list of wrongs or rights. There is only the man who stepped into your place. There's only the man who then through his death and then life radically then reconciles you and I to the relationship with the perfect judge who loved us so much would receive this man to step in our place. He would willingly step in, giving us new life in him. And so now, as we are in perfect relationship with our creator, it's no longer us that is seen. It's Christ in us. We're not defined by someone who once wore chains. We're not defined by our flesh, our personalities, our styles. We are defined by Christ in us, the man who took the place for what you were supposed to be, for what you were supposed to do, and for what you were supposed to pay for. And so through that, it's no longer those chains, those circumstances that define us. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And that's where the cross becomes a radical reconciliation in relationship. Radical reconciliation. Because it's not about our chains. It's about Christ. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. One has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so I think for you and I to experience the joy of our salvation, we have to acknowledge that it's not just some reconciliation piece that, that, that we have to systematically understand. It was radical. It was the willingness of Jesus to reconcile you to relationship with the Father. That's the joy of our salvation. That it's not you and I. It's not what we stood before the judge to convince him of. We couldn't do any of that. There was nothing good in us, but through Christ, that's where we see good in us and in others. It's Christ. It's not me. It's not you. It's Christ who radically reconciled us to the Father. But I think we forget this. This is where we seem like joyless, miserable Christians because we experience the joy through remembering we are free. See, we forget that that we're free. I have been resting on this verse, Galatians five one, for so long, for months and months. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And stand firm, firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, back in like November. I bought this chain. And I just kept just meditating on this verse. This verse that we are free. And I think it's really easy for you and I to go back to a place of bondage. That we act sometimes like we're not experiencing the joy because we believe we're still in the courtroom. We get into this rut, we we feel like we're still stuck, and it's so easy to return to this place of slavery and return to our chains. But can I just tell you there's a big difference between struggling, between our struggles, and our identity. But often we just mix those two up. That we forget that if we're in Christ, we're no longer in chains that we're not defined by our circumstances because we have joy, joy that comes from Jesus. But we forget. And so we take this different stance. And I believe too often we have this idea that because we struggle, so does God. That maybe for you this morning, you feel really distant and disconnected from God. Maybe for you, you've never even had a personal relationship with God. And you feel like because you're struggling, so is He. That not, not maybe struggling with him, him knowing He's God, but maybe you think because you're struggling with your relationship, He's struggling with you. And that just isn't true. That's not true this morning. It's not true ever. I mean, think back to when you first became a believer. When you first met Jesus and you realized that you are no longer in chains. See, I think we go from, from holding our chain as a statement of freedom. See, David laid this out perfectly in Psalms 51. Got to have a great conversation with John Haas where we were just talking about this and going, man, how do you, how do you just acknowledge that this is, this is the chains I once were in, but, but yet we're in this sin culture. And David says in Psalm 51, my sin is ever before me. That I, I acknowledge that sin is there. Because I've met Christ, I am transformed. But that, that's still there. I, I'm still in the world. I still am going to struggle at times. But I think we go from holding our chains as a statement of freedom. This is my bondage I was in, the message that we share. These chains don't define me. I am free. And this is what Jesus did. I think we go from that to returning to being in our chains. And so we think, man, I'm struggling. And I'm not doing good enough for Jesus. Or man you know, that person really pointed out a flaw in me. I really shouldn't be volunteering in this church. And I've really failed. And then the final one, do I really even have salvation? And this is where we return to. And this is why you look so miserable in your life. Because you're not holding your chain. You're back in them. You're back in bondage. And the only thing that God feels towards you is brokenness that you are not holding your chain. You're in them. And that's not what he wanted for you. And so one thing that I want to point out to you, and you're going to experience trials You're going to experience hard times where you feel that you're in chains. But can I give you a bit of truth that we read from what Jesus has done on the cross? There is no lock. There is no lock on these chains. And I think what we tend to believe is that there's this combination we have to figure out. And we try to figure out this combination to the lock going, man, maybe it's 316. Maybe if I go to this verse and it's, it's, it's this passage or this thing. And we're trying to figure out this combination to a lock that does not exist. And Jesus is just saying, if you would just get real and repent. If you would just acknowledge the radical reconciliation that my son has done for you then you would remember that you're free. And all of a sudden, your hands go from, God, please, I'm in these chains, to, to back down to a surrender state, to where they just fall off. And again, you return to acknowledging, these are the chains I was once in, but I'm not in bondage. I'm not based upon my circumstances. I'm not based upon my struggles My life is based upon my identity in Christ, that he has set me free. See, what David says in verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 51, he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then he goes on to say later in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And so, church, my prayer for you this morning is you acknowledge you're not in chains anymore. That is not your identity. You have been set free by the perfect sacrifice that is Jesus, that he stepped into your place. So you're no longer in the courtroom in chains. You're in relationship with the Father who has set you free. Who has set you free. You are not defined by your chains, You hold this as a reminder of what Christ has done, but they do not hold you. God is what holds you. Let's pray.